Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. Each week, a recovered alcoholic woman is interviewed and asked questions about certain topics surrounding her journey of recovery with your host, Stephanie Crawford. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Stephanie Crawford, and I am the host of this podcast, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We are going to have a blast and talk to Emily C. And Emily, if you don't mind, uh, first, congratulations on your engagement. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. That's so exciting. But um, if you don't mind, just give the listeners a little bit of background on um, what your alcoholism looks like and and what brought you to a place to get sober. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. By the way, this is such an honor. A little bit about me. I grew up in Richardson, Texas, just north of Dallas. I lived in the same red brick house my whole childhood. My mother was an educator and a diagnostician. Um, And in the last seven years of her career, a assistant principal at an elementary school. My dad had a job as well. They split up when I was four or five. They split and that was no fun for me. And then my father got sick. My father passed away when I was in first grade. I was seven. And of course, that is not why I'm an alcoholic. You know, I'm an alcoholic because I have a mental obsession and a physical allergy, but I do remember being angry with God from age seven. That's what that did. That, and I, I still believed in a higher power. I was just pissed off about that. Other than that, normal childhood, I, uh, I grew up playing soccer and I did track. I did choir. I did always feel different. I always felt different than my friends and everyone else. To me, it seemed like everybody else was in on some secret to life that I didn't know about. And they seemed so comfortable and things came so easily. And, and I felt like an outsider. I felt disconnected. I felt anxious and nervous all the time. And it was very important to me. I know now that this is a character defect. It's brought to my attention by my sponsor. But it was very important to me that people liked me. That people liked me and uh, kind of that perfectionism idea, which is control land, which, yeah, my sponsor still reminds me, Emily, God did not design you for everybody to like you. That's not helpful. God did not design you to be perfect. That's not helpful. So I do remember my dad drinking beer growing up. 
and my mom drinking like white wine with her girlfriends that she'd have over. I do not think I've ever seen my mother drunk. As far as I know, I am the only alcoholic in my family, as far as I know. And I guess if I'm not, that's none of my business, right? It's a self-diagnosed disease. Anyway, my dad would give me like little sips of his beer when I, when I was small. And my mom, I remember her giving me little sips of wine and I thought it was gross, whatever. My first drink was, I believe in ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade. Uh, I was at a friend's house and she had older siblings that would, they were in high school and they'd have parties all the time. And they got us some Zima. And that was my first experience. Tipsy the effects of alcoholism you know you'd put the little jolly rancher in the zima and i had a few and i remember lying on my girlfriend's like a uh, bedroom floor and watching the ceiling spin and just thinking that was the coolest feeling that euphoria of it i loved it i loved it that night i remember feeling the sense of ease and comfort that the book talks about at once, like all that anxiety gone. You know, I, I could talk to the guys that, you know, were going to Berkner and um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun and it continued to be fun. My personal experience is not being a blackout drinker from the beginning. I, I did not have the allergy in the beginning. Middle school, high school, college, drinking was fun. It worked, it was social, it was not a mental obsession. That didn't happen until I reached my mid twenties and my drinking got weird. It got weird. It got secretive. Um, that mental obsession was starting. Um, and also the, I, the allergy. Um, in my mid-20s, I was finding that I couldn't call my numbers sometimes. Not all the time. But that's, you know, this is a progressive disease, right? And I remember like 23, 24, 25 it started to get weird and it got weird quick. Problematic <laughs> consequences were happening, which also that's not what makes me an alcoholic, but things were starting to happen. And I was realizing that I was losing control. And because drinking did work for so long, I held on to that period, those years that it was good. It says in the book, the great obsession of every abnormal drinker is the ability to en enjoy and control. And I held on to that, Stephanie, for so long. You know, I just thought if I can just get back there, you know, if I can get, if I can get my job right or get the right guy or get everything right, because the thought of giving it up was terrifying. Ter it ter 
to give up my solution to life was not something I was ready to do until I was totally out of options. And alcohol is the great persuader. It's the great persuader. So I drank. Um, I think I went to my first like a meeting. I was not sober. Like in 2010 or 2011 with a buddy that I had met. At that point, I, I knew I had a problem. I wasn't really ready to do anything about it. But I started going to meetings. And then every time the bottom would fall out, I remember that feeling. I don't know if this is making sense. Like, okay, okay, it can't get any worse than this. If I can just manage and hold it here, I'll be okay. But it would always get worse. It always got worse. And so it wasn't until 2013 that I, after a lot of uh, negative consequences, I'll put it that way, with personal relationships, with my place of employment, harming, hurting people, embarrassed, just everything coming to a head. It, it wasn't until then that I was like, okay, I, I need help. And I had called my mom one night and I, I said, I, I need help. I can't stop drinking and I need help. We laugh about it now because she argued with me and said, um, you're not an alcoholic. But nevertheless, she, she came and she picked me up in the morning. And this was in 2013. And I went to my first treatment. I, I went to Homeward Bound. I went twice. What would happen is I would get in there, right? I would detox. I'd make friends. I I would get some information, right? That first trip to Homeward Bound was where I met my sponsor. She came in on a Friday night, which I couldn't believe that these beautiful, happy women came to rehab came for an hour to carry him. Like, I couldn't believe that. It like blew my mind that these women came in to carry, you know, and hold a meeting for us. And I remember exactly what my sponsor said that made me stop doodling and look up. She said, it was normal for me to wake up in the morning, turn on the coffee pot, and then crawl into the bottom of my closet and drink until my hands stopped shaking. And she said it just like that. No stigma, no shame. She said it just like, she knew her truth. And I, I remember I, like it, it like knocked the breath out of me. And I knew in that moment I wanted to work with her. The crazy thing about alcoholism is after being in there for two weeks, my brain will start saying things like, well, I'm not as bad as these heroin addicts. I think I'm so special that I will be able, now that I know that I'm an alcoholic and I've lost control, I just won't drink. I, I don't think I need to get a sponsor. I don't think I need to work the steps. I'm just not going to drink. Insanity. Insanity. You know, weeks prior to that, I'm passed out in my own vomit. That's my truth. But my brain will be like, no, it wasn't. It's fine. It's not that bad. So 2013, it took me four treatments, four two-week treatments. I made it to Maggie's. 
I got busy with my sponsor, got to three, got out, got into sober living. I was drunk within a week and a half, step one experience. Uh, uh, I, I cannot manage the decision to stay stopped. I can't, being homeless, I thought that might stop me. It didn't, it absolutely didn't. Knowing I'm gonna get kicked out of my sober living if I drank, didn't stop me. So uh, I got kicked out of my house. I had just left Mag, I had just left. And I called my sponsor crying and said, uh, I'm drunk. Um, and when I drink that suicidal ideation, big time, and I said, I, I wanna die. And she talked to me real calmly and she was like, okay. She I think she said something like, I was afraid of that because we were just about to do my four step. And she said, Emily, what do you wanna do? And I said, I'm gonna have to go back somewhere. I, I, there's no way I'm gonna be able to stop. And she said, let me call you right back. I know now that she called her sponsor and she called me back. And um, that was my last trip to Maggie's. That was that fourth trip. This was whew, October, 2013. And that is what it took me to totally get my step one experience. That is what led me to the program in AA and getting connected to this. So you got sober at Maggie's? I did, yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I did, yeah. And I, I remember asking Lee when I was drunk on the phone with her, I was in a Wendy's parking lot and I remember asking her, you know, crying, are you still going to work with me? And I remember her saying, Emily, yes, but you have to go fast. That's what she said. If I'm not through the work within a week or two, I'm done. That's just my truth. And I, I know plenty of women that can take their time and go a little bit slower. Mm -hmm. And kudos, you know, Godspeed, whatever works. I'll be so drunk, like after two weeks, um, if I'm not through the steps and connected to something else, I'm drunk. Mm -hmm. So you got out of Maggie's this last time. First, um, Lee's your sponsor. I'm, we're going to get into this later, but she was supposed to come on this last week or the week before, but I got, I got COVID. So no, I'm so sorry. Yeah. So we hit, we're rescheduling, but I've never met her, but I've heard wonderful. Really? Yeah. She's loyal ever. She's great. Yeah. I've heard wonderful things. Well, so you left Maggie's and she, Lee said you had to go fast. What did that look like whenever you got out? Like, cause I know there's going to be, cause you know, like in, you know, the land of recovery and 12 step and everything, like, you know, you hear people that have their opinions or whatever about like how quickly or how slowly you should go through the steps. And so I know that somebody in here is going to hear what a week or two, somebody who listens to this is going to hear like, what you go through the steps that fast, that's not thorough. And that's not, how does that work? And so I would just love for you to talk about how that worked 
for you? Like what did that look like for you and all that stuff? Absolutely. Okay. So what that looked like was Lee coming up to Maggie's, bringing me work to do. And I think she gave me, I want to say five days to a week to do my four step. Cause like, she knew that's where I fell off before we did one, two, three. Like, she's like, are you powerless? You know? And I was like, yes. And she's like, are you willing to go to any length? I said, yes. She said, can you follow direction? I said, yes. And she said, we'll see. (laughs) That's what she said. I'll never forget it. She would come up to Maggie's. So by the time I left back up, we spent like two minutes on step two. She's like, do you believe in a higher power? Yeah, but I'm angry with it. Great. Moving on. Um, we did my third step prayer at the old Magdalene house on Redwood Circle, you know, and I cried and she held my hand. We got on our knees and she gave me my four step sheets and said, you have a week. I wasn't coddled, you know, at that point, she wasn't going to be gentle with me. It was my job to follow directions, to be completely honest and to do whatever she said. She told me, you are to treat your home group meetings. She said, Emily, you are to treat that as a commitment for now, meaning you're expected to be there Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday without fail, which I did. You know, when she'd say, you're going to greet, you're going to stand in front and greet tonight. Yes, ma'am. I had a week to do my fourth. We met at Starbucks, did my fifth step. I did leave something off. I did not forget I omitted something, which of course, then in your six, seven, right? That came up like, I probably should tell her about it. And I did. It was a Thursday night. We were to meet early because we're still going through the steps. And I said, "I, I need to talk to you in private. And she said, okay. And we sat down like in one of the back rooms. And I said, I, I left something off. I left something off I'm really embarrassed about. And she was like, okay. And, you know, all those things that we're so ashamed of and that make us cringe, our sponsors don't care. They have heard it. They have done it. They're not there to judge us. And I told her and she was like, that's it. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, okay. She was like, You know, I'm glad you told me, Emily, because being dishonest will lead you back to drinking again. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm telling you now. And she was like, okay. Um, And we talked about that. And then I was making amends, you know, eight, nine. I was making amends days later. And then that Friday night, I went with her to Homeward Bound, you know where I consider myself an alum and carried the message. And it, it, it was a, a week and a half, two weeks. Did I feel ready to sponsor? No, but I was following directions because I was desperate and I was just doing whatever she told me to do. So were you sponsoring that early? I was sponsoring, I want to say five or six months sober, I was sponsoring. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were carrying the message with like two weeks sober. Yeah. Yeah. And at first she just had me listen, you know, and then one time we went to Homeward Bound on a Friday and she was like, okay, ladies, Emily's going to share her story tonight. And I was like, what? But yes, I, I've had a commitment since then, either Homeward Bound or the 2-4. And she has made it very clear that that's vital, that that is not a optional thing to do. Mm-hmm. So were, did you feel ready to carry the message? No. <laughs> It didn't matter. It didn't matter how I felt, you know, it's about action. Mm-hmm. And she'd tell me that. And, she, and like, I remember her saying, Emily, when you're in a meeting now and it says, hey, if you're available to sponsor, raise your hand or stand up, I need you to do that. And I was like, what? And I was like, I don't feel ready. And she was like, all you have to offer these women is your experience in the book. That's it. Like I, she's like, you are uniquely qualified to help alcoholic women and God will put women in your life on his time as he sees fit, but you are the middleman between God and alcoholic women stand up. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And she's been your sponsor this whole time. Whole time. Yes, ma'am. She has. How has that relationship changed or grown or evolved? Or because that's a long time since 2013. <laughs> she okay. The truth is, I was kind of afraid of her at first, right? Or afraid of doing something wrong, you know, which probably goes back to ego and fear and character defects. But like I remember, I remember once having to meet her and I was late. I was working at a pizza place at the time and I got there and I was like 30, 40 minutes late. The meeting hadn't started. She wanted me to meet her before. And um, she looked up at me and she said, come outside and talk to me for a minute. And I was like, and she just looked me in the eye and she said, last chance. And I knew what she meant, you know, because I was slacking. I was late. And I said, okay, when we talk on the phone now, we say, I love you, which we didn't use to. And she has told me that she loves me now, like as a friend, but that came after me doing the step work and me getting connected to God. She is my friend now. Like, like sometimes we can speak to each other just as, just as friends, just as two women in recovery, which is wonderful. That's wonderful. When my, when my aunt Mary passed away a few years ago, she came, she showed up to the celebration of life. I stayed really close to her during that time. And she has, she has shown up uh, for me through the dark spots in my life, you know, both as my sponsor and and as a friend. I don't, I, I hope she would say the same thing. I just adore her. And she's, she's not afraid to hurt my feelings. She's never been afraid to 
She's going to tell me the truth. And I'll tell girls that ask me to work with them. I'm going to match your effort, you know, and I can't want this more than you do. And maybe that hurts their feelings. Maybe, But Lee, she will tell me the truth. She will point out my ego, my fear, tells me when I'm being delusional, you know, when my fantasy life spins out of control and she'll be like, okay, honey, that hasn't even happened yet. Like, you know, you know how we get. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think God knew that I needed that because in the beginning, like she made it very clear, like, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to get you through the steps and hold you accountable. And that's it. But yeah, and I feel like now we are friends. <laughs> when did you stop being afraid of her? That's a good question. Maybe after I had sponsored a few women and could have conversations with her about sponsoring women. Because mm-hmm. in the beginning, you know, that accountability and like, you know, the rigorous honesty it requires. That was very counterintuitive to the way I was used to living, you know? So having someone holding me accountable felt uncomfortable and scary. So maybe two years, maybe two years in, I stopped being afraid of her. (laughs) Oh, this is totally going in a different direction but when did you meet your fiance and how did you guys meet oh okay um we met on bumble woohoo yes bumble i Um, did not have any luck with bumble or hinge i tried them both oh well i i I dated about a year on it right Mm -hmm. And it's tricky online dating because sometimes you'll get really excited about a guy and then it fizzles out or, you know, you know, online dating, it can be tricky. God, it's 2022 now. We met September three years ago. Yeah, we uh, met on Bumble. We started messaging. I really liked what he put in his profile you know, what you put on your little profile, he said something like, I believe it would take nothing short of a miracle to meet someone on here. (laughs) And I thought that was funny. And we started chit chatting. And I don't think we met in person for like a month. And like, yeah, we just taught we just would chat on Bumble. And then we would do the phone call thing. And then we met for sushi one Friday night. And the first few months of us dating was just sushi restaurants. That's all we did for the first few months. Um, He is not an alcoholic. Um, He's a normie, which, you know, fascinates me that he can drink a beer and then leave the rest of the six pack in the refrigerator. Yeah. That's, that's weird to me and he's great and he's great. And he, he understands what I'm doing. Um, in the beginning, I remember him being like, is this something you're going to have to do forever? And I was like, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Unless you want to see me drunk 
and it's not cute. Like I kind of had to explain to him because he's never seen me drunk, right? Right. And how did like how did that go? Because I know there's going to be somebody listening. Because I'm just thinking of like all my attempts at getting sober, and one of them was like, "Oh my God, why do I? What do I tell the guy on this?" Of like, why I don't drink? And then later it was like, "Okay, I don't care if he knows I don't drink, but like, how do I tell him that like I have to like work this 12 step program forever or I die?" You know. <laughs> Uh, and so like, like how did that conversation go? Okay. Let me think, Stephanie. I think that that was something that came up in one of our phone calls and I told him, Hey, listen, man, like I'm a recovered alcoholic. And what that means is I go to meetings and I help others and I have a commitment and it, it was brought up on one of our dates or at some point I remember him saying like, you know, Emily, sometimes I do wish that you could have a drink with me. Like when we're on a date, you know, like sometimes I wish that we could share that. And I think I reacted saying something like, is this going to be an issue? Cause like I, I'm not going to relapse. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I was like, yeah, that would be, it's a lovely, it's a lovely thought that I could have a glass of wine with you on a date night, but guess what? You know, I have an allergy and a mental obsession and I'm a raging chronic relapsing alcoholic. And I was like, Mark, I promise you, you, if I was drinking, you would not want to spend time with me. I, pr- I promise you, I can drive the men away. And like, I think that's hard for him to visualize or imagine, you know, um, he's never seen it. And we are, we're different people when we're drunk. So I, I'm like, just trust me. It's better that I don't drink. And I, when I asked him, is this going to be an issue? He was like, no, you know, cause of course he could find a woman that could have some cocktails with him on a date night. It's not me, mm-hmm. but he could. Um, so I, when the time is right and you do feel ready to like share that with someone you're dating and that's your truth, just share it. You just, you know, if it's something that you do have to do, and if they're cool with it, they're cool with it. And if they're not, bye Felicia. Um, yeah, definitely. I know I had uh, dated a guy and he was like, do you get paid? Cause I would be like, okay, I gotta go speak here. Or like, I gotta go to this treatment center again. Like, do you get paid for all that? When do you get a night off? And I was like, well, no, I don't get paid. It's my like, duty and I enjoy doing it. And like, this is my night off. <laughs> I don't know. Like I like this is what I do, and it like did it caused friction in our relationship, you know, because sometimes like he would feel like neglected, or like you have a night off work and it should be spent with me, or you know, like you'll get a babysitter for that, but not get a babysitter for this, you know. And but I also know that there's people like Mark who will completely support and and embrace. <laughs> Yeah, to, to explain to someone, so when we tell people that aren't addict or alcoholic, like this is life or death for me, 
maybe they think we're being dramatic or something. We're not, we're not. Like this is life and death for me. And yeah, the truth is sometimes I'm like, oh, I don't want to go to the two four, but it is the bright spot of my life. You know, I, I love Mark. I love my fiance and I, I love the people in my life. But like it says in the book, I'm paraphrasing. It's you don't want to miss this being able to help the newcomer. And I thought this was bull when I first got sober, but it is true. Like you get a buzz from it. You like, that's the closest I feel to God is when I'm getting another woman through the steps. And then I'm a better fiance. I'm a better friend. I'm a better, like I'm easier to be around when I'm, when I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. When I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs, he can tell when I'm starting to stray. Cause I get sideways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not every, uh, you know, partner is going to have a sponsor to be able to 10 step with before like reacting and making things worse. I mean, we can still do that for sure, but it's nice to have that sponsor to, to be able to 10 step before really blowing things up, you know? Right. Which I wish I 10 stepped before I blew up, but I, I still blow up occasionally. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I have to call Lee crying and she's got to straighten me out. And uh, yeah, sometimes I have to make amends, you know, to Mark and say, I regret this. I was wrong. I'm, you know, what can I do? Are you the loved one of an alcoholic? Our family support group serves as a community for friends, loved ones, and family members of alcoholics to learn about alcoholism understand how to help an alcoholic, and experience an improved quality of life, regardless of the alcoholic's recovery. We have weekly support meetings that meet virtually and in person, as well as a monthly speaker meeting. To find out more about our family support group, visit magdalenhouse.org family. Well, speaking of the 10 step, and this just kind of came to me because we were talking about it the other day where like, I don't like, especially like I early on in recovery, like I literally like 10 step everything. Like I missed the bus. I'm calling my sponsor to 10 step fear, like everything, everything, everything. But what I have seen based on my experience in staying sober and watching other women is that there's sometimes like a disconnect there with what to 10 step, how to 10 step, what is a 10 step. So like, do you mind talking about like your experience with that? And like, what would you say to someone who's like newly sober struggling in that area? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Side note, my first six to nine months of sobriety Lee would have me, I know this isn't 10 stepping, this is 11, but it helps 10 stepping too. She would have me on page 86, nightly review. Give me one second, Stephanie. She would have me either email her, like when we, when we retire at night, constructively review our day. She, it would be like one, 
Were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? I would type something or write something. Do we owe an apology? I would go through all that either on paper, take a picture of it, send it to her, or email it to her. And that, and of course, after your fourth and fifth step, you like bare your soul so you're not embarrassed to to 10 step. Um, in the beginning, I did 10 step a lot. I had a lot of, I would feel resentful um, in the beginning of some of my coworkers. I, uh, I remember getting comments like, oh, I, I didn't know that you still worked here, Emily. Cause you know, I'd gone to rehab so many times and I'd be like, yep, well, I'm just, you know, fighting for my life. And they'd be like, yeah, who's winning? Just like what I perceived as snarky comments, which now I wouldn't care, but then it like embarrassed me or hurt my feelings or pissed me off. And having to call Lee about that, you know, with some of my coworkers that I didn't get along with and her having to point out my part in it, whether it's an expectation of how people act or treat me. Um, I remember once, this isn't really a 10 step, but I, my car broke down on the way to work and I didn't panic. Like I, I let my boss know, hey, I'm gonna be late, this and that, called AAA. And like the fact that I didn't totally lose my mind was new for me. I didn't cry, I didn't. And I remember calling Lee and being like, hey, I'm on the side of the road and I'm totally calm. And she said, yeah, God's doing for you what you can't do for yourself. And I was like, oh, cool. So yeah, in the beginning, I, every day, I'd either call her with something or I would 10 step and she would tell me, you know, my part in it, you know, tell me to make amends if I'd harm someone and then say, go be helpful to somebody else. And like at a certain point, I'd pick up the phone to 10 step and I'd be like, oh my God, I know exactly what she's going to say. Around nine months, I kind of stopped calling her as much as I should have to the point where I had a couple close friends, girlfriends in recovery say, Emily, I think you need to call your sponsor. And I don't know if that's because I was afraid of what she was going to tell me. I, I was holding on to a relationship and I guess my point is that there are times where I would kind of not disappear, but keep some resentments or fear to myself, which I do not recommend. The cool thing is after a while of sitting that, sitting in the uh, uncomfortableness, which I did have to do for a little bit. I was ready to call her, you know, it, it's like the obsession to drink wasn't there. I knew what I needed to do, which was call Lee. And that all goes back, of course, to step one, you know, but still eight years in, I'll still drift into control land, mm -hmm. you know, think about that fourth column on your fourth step, all those character defects still, still pop up. And Lee's real quick to point him out to me, which I love her for. Mm. Now, I wrote this down while you were talking. 
as a reminder to ask you about it. So you said like your mom was saying like, Emily, you're not an alcoholic. What did, she, and you say you laugh about it now, like what did she think was, was wrong with you? And like, when did she discover that you are an alcoholic and how, how has that relationship grown or changed since you've gotten sober? I think the level of denial on her part was very strong. And for her, and I'll let her speak for herself in February. Yes, but I'm going to be coming on too. She has said to me in the past, like the thought of my only daughter being an alcoholic, that was hard for her to wrap her mind around. And I don't know if it's because she thought she did something wrong or it was her fault. Cause that's bullshit. You know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic because I am, you know, she's, she's a great mother, but that level of denial, she argued with me, you know, she, she did not want to believe that her daughter's an alcoholic. Like I, I called her and was like, I, I need help. Like I need to go somewhere. And like I said, she did pick me up and she sat with me, you know, going to Homeward Bound is an all day event. You're in that waiting room all day. And she sat next to me, did her crossword puzzle. She started making friends with people in the waiting room. Um, she told me later, my God, it was so hard to sit next to you. You reeked. And I was like, yeah. And I remember her asking me, how could I not know about this? Or, or, or how did I not see this happening or something like that? And I was like, well, I mean, I tried to hide it. And you're in denial, so it wasn't hard, you know. Did that answer the question? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted, I just wanted you to talk more about it because I thought it was kind of, uh, kind of funny, you know? Yeah, I mean, she... And during my journey through getting connected, she found Al-Anon, you know, which, which she says, she's like, Al-Anon was my lifeline. I literally had never heard of Al-Anon until my mom said, I'm going to Al-Anon. And I was like, what the hell is that? And she was like, it's for people who have alcoholics loved ones. And I was like, well, what do you, you do? It didn't make sense. This is how selfish I was. She was, she was like, well, you know, we kind of do the same things you do. I was like, that makes no sense. You are not powerless over alcohol. You're not power. You, you, you're not powerless. And she was like, Emily, I'm powerless over your alcoholism. And I was like, oh, okay, it, it, that didn't occur to me, you know, because for so many years, I love to think my alcoholism doesn't affect anyone. None right. of your business, stay out of my affairs. This doesn't affect you, which is so selfish and self-centered. And not true. And not true. We affect everyone around us. We're like the tornado, right? Yes, absolutely. What you and Ainsley are really close, right? Yes. Yes. I, yeah, I adore her. We lived together um, for years. 
and Ainsley's wonderful. She's wonderful. How did you guys meet? I think the first time I met Ainsley was before a PPG meeting. And I remember seeing this petite, blonde, cute girl. And then late, she lived in an Oxford house. I lived in an Oxford house, different ones. I remember giving her a ride once to PPG, her and a couple other girls. And then at one point she needed to move houses. And I remember she called to do a phone interview and we talked. So I got to live with her in sober living before we lived together, you know, just, just me and her and Mm -hmm. nobody's a better roommate than Ainsley. How awesome. Now, um, I remember maybe I was thinking maybe this was your story, but like you were talking about, like you were in sober living and like your sponsor, I think had said to you, like, it will be very, very clear when it is time for you to move out. Is that your story? Well, yeah, probably a lot of women's story, but yeah, she did say that. Um, Will you talk about that just because I know that there's also going to be women listening to this who like, I'm just experiencing with a sponsor right now, who's like praying about whether or not it's time for her to move out. And so like, there's going to be other people listening. So do you mind like sharing your experience with sober living and moving out of sober living? Absolutely. I always had told myself, I'm going to live in sober living one year because they really had me sold on that idea. If you can live in Oxford for one year, your percentages of long-term sobriety was like 90 something percent. And I remember thinking, well, I need that, you know, women's numbers aren't good and I need all the help and accountability I can get. So the plans that I had in my head about moving out after a year, I'm not going to get into it. My personal life fell apart. And it was clear that my plans to move out with who I thought I was going to move out with, that wasn't going to happen. So I was like, you know what? I'm okay. I'm okay here. I'm going to stay put. I stayed for three years. I lived at Odette. It's in chapter 16. And that's longer than I thought I would stay. I, you know, of course I was the most senior member by that point. Um, And I I remember Lee saying like, God will make it really uncomfortable when it's time. And God did. And I had to put away my preconceived plans of what my life was going to look like. Like if you told me, you know, when I first got sober or whatever, Hey, you're going to live in an Oxford house for three years. I would have been like, no, I'm not, but that's what ended up happening. I felt like as long as I could be helpful to the house and still take care of my stuff that I could stay. And uh, a time did come where it was time. It was time. And you know, I left the house on good terms. And for a while, they would still have me like come sit in emergency house meetings and stuff. Um, But she'll know. That's, that's what I'd like to tell the people who are struggling with that, like prayerful consideration. 
I always encourage women, don't move out or make a rash impulsive decision because you're reacting to something. There were times where I did not have rent. There were times where I had to pay fines for leaving my stuff in the dryer or whatever, breaking the rules. And when that stuff happens, yeah, you can be mad about it for a minute, but then realize like you have to follow the rule. Like I'd always tell women, don't move into sober living or Oxford if you don't want to be held accountable. But when there are consequences and you have to pay a fine or you have to do extra chores because you're on whatever, what do they call it? Uh, Contract. Yeah, that's what you signed up for. Mm -hmm. That's when you have to remove your ego, follow directions and do it. Mm -hmm. Not just for you, but for the house. And the women that I met, God, the women that I met at Odette are some of the closest friendships I have to this day. Yeah, it's where I met Ainsley. It's where I met Ariana Taylor. Women, I, I'm not sure I would have met otherwise. Yeah. You know? And I remember some of the relapses in the house, you know, I, I would cry for three days. After a while, maybe I did get a little desensitized to it. Mm-hmm. But it's like a good demonstration of the reality of what we're dealing with. I, I have lost roommates, you know, I, I, I've. I've lost friends in the eight years and that sucks, but that is the reality of this disease. So as long as I keep doing 10, 11, and 12, as long as I'm helping other women, um, that's my job now, right? Uh, I have a new director. I have a new employer. Yeah. And, and I, I think sober living is great. I think Oxford is great. Um, it's not what got me sober. There's mm-hmm. some people I hear that's like, Oxford saved my life. That's great. That's, you know, I relapsed out of Oxford. Same. <laughs> um, and then I went back and stayed for three years. But I believe in Oxford was a good place to get a solid foundation to be held accountable. It is not what saved my life. The steps and God did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the women I, I met there, I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Mm-hmm. So I guess my point for the people that women that are struggling with that, prayerful consideration, do not move out if you're reacting to something. Stick it out because it'll pass in a month. I would just try your best to leave the house on good terms is all I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think that's really good. Before, because I know that we've been here for an hour, but- Oh my God. I don't want to like take up all of your time or anything, but before like we get, you know, wrapping up and stuff, is there anything that like you want to make sure we talk about that I can ask you about? Nothing's coming to my, no. Cool. Then I do want to ask with you. Okay. So you've been sober for eight years, right? Yes, ma'am. And you've had the same sponsor in the same home group the entire time. Has there ever been a time where you were like, 
like, oh, I need something else. This is, you know, like, or, you know, like, or have you, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, sometimes like, you know, we can get to this place where we think like, oh, I need to switch things up, you know, like, did you ever, have you ever experienced that or did you ever experience? And, uh, and what did you do when you were feeling that way? And like, why have you, why have you decided not to do that? And, and cause, cause I think it's really cool. And it's also really unique, you know, that like you have that experience and I'm sure there are times where you probably were like, you know, thinking otherwise, but do you mind just talking about, about that? Absolutely. Yes. There are times where I have taken a step back from AA meetings, even before COVID to the point where uh, me and Lee will have to have a talk about it. And she'll be like, what's going on? And I had to get real honest with her about why I wasn't going, you know, to at least one meeting a week. I had a, I only say this if it can be helpful to someone. And in 2020, I did have a episode slash nervous breakdown and had to get some help, had to get into some therapy and see a doctor and all that stuff. And I had to... I really limited my uh, social, not that an AA meeting is a social event, but I, I limited my going out stuff, mm-hmm. um, staying really close to Lee the entire time and working with other women the entire time. Thank God. But yeah, there have been times where I'm like, I need to change or um, I'm going to go to DAA for a little bit. For a while, my friend, like if, if my friends have like a, a monthly commitment, uh, just recently, my friend had a monthly commitment and an open discussion meeting, which I hadn't been doing so long. And I would go with her every, every Tuesday to like an eight o'clock meeting, which was super late for me just to, I don't know, spice it up, get a little something different, which is great. It's not my home group. But yes, I, I have had those times where I need a break. And I have had that insane thought where I think, I don't know if I need AA anymore. I've had that. Absolutely. <laughs> and then is it followed it up? Is it followed up with the same thought of like, no, I do actually. Yeah. Or a conversation with Lee or, you know, someone else in recovery who's like, girl, like as bad as you were, you know? Yeah, you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if I have my faith in God and carrying the message and all that stuff, but yeah, I, I do have those insane thoughts sometimes. And I imagine you really trust Lee, right? I do, absolutely. And was that trust built over time or like how did? Or were you just like, you know, I have no choice but to trust this person because I'm going to die kind of thing? Um, No, the trust came over time. Mm -hmm. The trust came over time. And, you know, she wasn't very, this is a good way to sponsor too. She wasn't very forthcoming about her personal stuff. 
you know, when I first got sober and why would she, you know, she's trying to like save my life, get me through the steps. But um, as the years have gone by and I'll call her with stuff and she'll share some of her personal life, that builds trust as well. I mean, I, I always trusted her, but now it's like a more intimate, you know, when, when you disclose things about your personal life that you don't have to. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's grown, absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and I always knew in the back of my mind, if I don't follow directions, if I don't do what this woman says, boop, I'm cut, you know? Mm -hmm. You made that very clear. Yeah. Well, since we are past the hour, thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you and just hang out with you for the last hour. Your voice is so soothing to me, so. Oh, thank you. Uh, yes. My wrap-up question would be, um, what would you want to leave the listeners with? Like, if it's for the woman who's getting sober or staying sober, what would you what would you want them to leave this podcast with if you could say one thing for them? If I could say one thing to them, I would say, if you're ready, if you're willing to go to any length, find a sponsor, ask her if she's had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, and then work the steps. Work them thoroughly, honestly, as outlined in the book it is guaranteed to change your life. Love it. So good. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. I will uh, see you in February with you and your mama. That's right. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Love right. you. Love you. Bye. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at MagdalenHouse.org.